Let me find my place in the Word of God this morning before we get started. We'll be in Mark chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there now. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We're looking at a very large section of text this morning. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, you can turn to page 840. And that'll bring you to Mark chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 21 through 43. Before I get started, I have an announcement too. We have growth, yes, so two announcements actually. If you're new with us, we ask that you fill out this connection card and just give us a little bit of information, whatever you feel comfortable with, and turn it into the back table also after the service, and we have a gift for you, and we want to make sure you get that gift before you leave. If you are a regular attender, let me encourage you, please just take a moment. Maybe you've never even done this. In fact, I know some of you have not, or you do not do it on a regular basis. Would you fill this out and let us know that you were here? All you have to do if you've been here before is just put your name. And then if you want to share a praise with us or a prayer request or, I don't know, something else, just put it on the back. You want to tell us a good, nice joke. That's fine too. Something that will make us laugh as long as it's appropriate. (laughs) If you have recommendations, anything. If you have questions even about the sermon, it's very hard, I know, to... Talk to me afterwards, so if you, want to, if you want to put a question about the sermon, I'll try to get back to you, So if, if I can answer it. Otherwise, I'll give it to someone else. <laughs> so, turn those in. We, we're hoping that you would do that every week. It would be a routine. If you're a regular attender, that you would turn this in, just one per family is all you need, and turn it into one of the boxes on the right or the left. My other announcement is that we, are, we have growth groups. They're small groups that meet twice a month in the middle of the week, and we're reorganizing those and starting fresh in March. And so we're probably going to also start another growth group. If you currently do not attend a growth group, right now we have growth groups on Wednesday and Friday, and I think we're going to be starting another one on Tuesday. If you currently do not attend and you're interested or you have questions about that, would you do me a favor? On the bottom it says, I'm interested in, and one of the options is growth groups. It's actually the second there, information on growth groups. Put your name on that, mark that, and someone will get back to you this coming week to talk to you about that. It doesn't mean you're committing to it. It just means you have some interest in it. Okay? Everyone good? Everyone ready to get into the Word of God? Okay, good. Again, that was weak. (laughs) Woo! All right, yeah! That's what I like. On December 17, 1927, a submarine of the United States Navy, while surfacing near the waters of Massachusetts, was accidentally rammed and sunk by a ship that was owned by the Coast Guard. Rescue and salvage operations began immediately, only to be frustrated, though, by severe weather. Heroic efforts were made to rescue six known survivors trapped in the forward torpedo room who had exchanged a series of signals with divers by tapping on the hole. As the trapped men used the last available oxygen in the hub, a diver placed his helmeted ear to the side of the vessel and received the following Morris code. Is there any hope? Sadly, there was no reason for hope. And all six men perished. Similarly, people feel today, and maybe you feel like this this morning, 
And if you don't feel like this today, I can assure you that someday you will. They feel trapped in tragic circumstances, slowly suffocating. And they're asking the same question that these dying men asked. Is there any hope? Today, as we read this text, I hope you will see that the answer God gives in the Scriptures is yes. Yes, there is hope. And hope's name is Jesus. Mark chapter 5. Let's look back at the text. If you're a note taker, the parallel passages or stories for this in Mark chapter 5 can also be found in Matthew chapter 9 verses 18 through 26 and Luke chapter 8 verses 40 through 56. Let's look at the text together in Mark chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha, kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. This morning, in your bulletin, or in your, yes, in your bulletin, there is an outline on the inside. And at the top is a statement that I give you every week that basically explains where we're going, what we're going to be talking about. So this morning, we have two illustrations in this text 
of Jesus' powerful response to faith so that we might not despair, but place all of our confidence in what He, that is Jesus, has already done and will certainly do in the future. That's where we're going this morning. So the first powerful response to faith, the first illustration of that we're going to look at is Jesus cured the incurable. Jesus cured the incurable. Let me give you a little bit of context before I start. Remember after Jesus dramatically, this is from last week in case you weren't here, he freed a demoniac who was controlled by a great number of demons. Do you remember what the demon called himself? Legion. Legion. Very good. That's excellent. Legion, because there were many. And this is when they were on the east side of Galilee. The people became very afraid when he actually healed this man and were probably not happy about the fact that they had lost 2,000 of their cattle, pigs, in the process of Jesus casting out these demons. So they begged Jesus to leave the territory and he complied. He left. That's our context. So he returns now back to the west shore where he had been previously in his ministry, where the crowds continued to grow. Remember that when he left the first time, the crowds were already overwhelming. He said, let's get to the other side. Now he's back. And upon his return, the crowds gather again. But this time, instead of there just being crowds, we're introduced to a specific man. That man's name is Jairus that we just read about. He's a ruler of the synagogue, and he had an urgent and desperate request for Jesus. Now, we're going to look at him in detail a little bit later. But for now, let me just tell you, Jesus complied. Immediately, upon this man's request, Jesus complied and started to follow him. As he followed him, the text that we just read says that the crowds also followed, and they thronged about him. Strange word, isn't it? How many of you have ever even used that word? None. Perfect. So, throng means, in verse 24, to surround and push against. To surround and push against somebody. Okay? Jesus had become like a celebrity to the people in the area. You see the same picture whenever the celebrities are caught by the paparazzi or the crowds. They are thronged immediately. They can't even almost can't even move or even breathe because of the pressure of those pressing in on them, wanting to just get near them, to touch their clothes or anything like that. That's exactly the situation that's going on here. So as he travels, the crowds are traveling with him. He's following Jairus. And then in verse 25, we're introduced to another very unique uh, character in this story. This person is identified simply as a woman. Just as a woman. Unlike Jairus who enters the story having a name and a special title, this woman has neither. She has neither. What she does have reveals the utter hopelessness of her situation. And Mark makes sure that we don't miss it. This takes us to verse 26. You can look back there in verse 26 of chapter 5. Verse 25, actually. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. A discharge of blood for 12 years. We're not told exactly what this is as far as the the name of this disease. Scholars believe that it was either a chronic menstrual disorder or uterine hemorrhage. Now men, I don't know if your woman has ever experienced anything like this, a problem in this area, but women could probably relate 
more easily with the situation. This is not good. It's not good. It's not good. And this was not an infrequent or recent problem that this poor woman had. She had been dealing continually with it for 12 long years. 12 long years. Not only was there a threat to her physical health because of the consistent loss of blood, but also to her social health. Well, how's that? What you do not see in the text before us that the Jews would understand and know in their context is that in the book of Leviticus, chapter 15, verses 25 through 27, this is a book in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book, God gave specific laws and procedures to the nation of Israel about how they were to deal with bodily discharges, such as blood. The woman's chronic condition that she continually had this flow of blood meant that she would be labeled by the Jewish people as ceremonially unclean. Well, what does that mean? The label lasts for at least seven days after the flow of blood stops, according to the Levitical law. So even after the flow stops, she's still unclean ceremonially for seven days. This would result in a major significant barrier to her having normal social relations since the law also said that anybody coming into physical contact with her or even even sitting where she has already set. So imagine, she comes into this place, into this church, and she sits in one of the chairs. According to the law, if she got up and I sat where she sat, I now am also ceremonially unclean. And that person would remain unclean until evening and would have to be ostracized from the community themselves. <clears throat> So while unclean, without getting confused or wondering why all these rules, why all these laws, just understand what the situation for this woman was. She was labeled as ceremonially unclean, which meant she would be separated from the community to some degree, and she also would not be allowed into the temple for worship. Now, I don't know if she had this every day of her life, but the reality is it was an ongoing problem and because there had to be at least seven days in between the last flow of blood before she could be declared clean again, most likely she lived most of her life in this position. So people were afraid of her, stayed away from her, didn't want to be labeled unclean because then they would also be kept away from the community and they couldn't enter into the house of worship. It was like she had the cooties. And I know that's a poor illustration, but I... I remember being, I remember as a young, young boy, when you got the cooties, it was not good. You, do you remember that? I don't even know how you got them, but once you had them, no one went near you. They stayed away from you. And I don't even know how you get rid of them. I think you had to give them to somebody else. Or This woman had Levitical cooties. She was ceremonially unclean. And it would have been tragic because... It didn't go away at recess, after recess was over. She remained unclean. Then it says in verse 26, she suffered much under many physicians. So as if her disease wasn't enough trouble, right? Treating it became another source of pain for this poor woman. 
Just like today, beloved, people become desperate when normal treatments are not working. Right? And when they hear about a possible cure, no matter how strange it might sound, out of desperation, they take a chance. They take a chance. Alternative medicine, beloved, is, is not always good medicine. Maybe some of you have experienced that. According to ancient records, some of the treatments that she might have undergone included drinking a goblet of wine containing a powder compounded from rubber, alum, and garden flowers, or sudden shock treatment, or the carrying of an ash of an ostrich's egg in a certain cloth. Now, I know what you're thinking. I don't. I'm going to guess. I don't have that ability. Tony, do you know what I'm thinking? Good. All right. Just checking, because you were looking at me like you did. You're probably thinking, oh, you know, these poor fools, they're so ridiculous back in their old ways. They didn't know anything about science and medicine. Actually, they did. They knew quite a bit. Not as much as we do now, certainly. But they did know quite a bit. But lest you think they're ridiculous and we're not, we have similar, crazy, alternative medicine in the 21st century. And people participate in these things. And I, I don't say that in any way to bring them low. They're desperate. They're desperate. Many of them are desperate. They just want to be relieved of the pain and suffering that they've been experiencing for years. For instance, I just Googled a few. We have beer spas. Now, I found this one interesting because I think the men would, yes, would. I think they partake of this therapy on a regular basis, actually. But somehow, being soaking in beer can relieve your, your illnesses. Or rebirthing therapy. Somehow this therapist takes you back to your birth in your mind. And, and as you go through that process again, it relieves you of your... Listen, I, don't, I, just, I just saw him. Or how about drinking your own urine? And I know that sounds disgusting, but there are those who believe somehow it can relieve you of certain ills. So this is the 21st century. We still got the stuff. She had spent... She had, she had gone to many physicians. They had done her much harm. I'm sure she went to some good physicians, but the good physicians could not heal this woman. And so out of desperation, she began to seek out anybody who made the promise that they could make her well. And it brought her much harm. Look back at verse 26. She had suffered much under many physicians. If that's not enough, she had spent all that she had. This really just elevates the desperation of this poor woman. She was left penniless. That's what it's saying. She's penniless. She's broke. She's given all of her money away to those who promised they could help her. The physicians had her money. She still had her illness. And then finally, in verse 26, suffered much under many physicians, spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. The treatments in some cases actually made her physical condition worse and certainly her emotional and mental state. I don't know if any of you have had diseases that you've struggled with, but it, uh, it, is, it is overwhelming when you put your hope in something, you're hoping that you're going to be cured, maybe this one will work, and then it's another disappointment. And it begins to work on the way you feel about life, and it begins to send you into depression and anxiety and 
And so not only was this woman physically worse off than when she started, but emotionally, mentally, I can't even imagine her state. For 12 years, she's penniless. She's gone to one doctor after another, and nothing's changed except her condition. It's actually worse. So Mark here is not making a case for health reform. That's not what he's doing. He's simply emphasizing the reality of human limitations. The woman's condition was viewed as incurable, and that's how you should view it too in this context. No one could cure. But, verse 27, I love the buts of the Bible. And I say that in all sincerity. It's a contrast. You should look for them. Whenever you see one, they are powerful. This is a powerful one. But she had heard the reports about Jesus. She had heard about Jesus. What did she hear about Jesus? What does the text say? You can talk back. She heard the reports about Jesus. She didn't just hear about Jesus. She heard something that was being reported about this man. She heard about how Jesus overcame human limitations by healing many who were sick with various diseases. We see that in Mark chapter 1, verse 34. That's what she heard about this one. Knowing what Jesus had done inspired faith in her that Jesus could do it for her she acted on what she believed to be true just as she had so many times before right with all the other physicians but this time but this time the object of her faith was not a man it was the son of god beloved let me just make a little side note here the true power of faith does not rest in the faith itself, but in the object it is placed. Let me give you an illustration of that. I've used this before. If I have an old beater, 20-year-old car out in my garage that's on its last legs, and I drive it 50 miles to work every day, but it's about ready to go. Listen. I can have all the faith in the world that that beater is going to get me to work. But one day, it's going down, baby. It's leaving me on the 210. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's going down because I've placed my faith in an unworthy object. That's why when you hear people talking about having faith in themselves or faith in their faith, or that's wrong. It is faith in in Christ, faith in God that makes your faith worth having. So it's not faith in religion or faith in my morality or faith in my education or faith in my good works or faith in how much money I give to some religious institution, although they'd want you to believe that. It is faith in Jesus that counts. It is faith in Jesus that counts. That is, who He is, what He has done, and what He will do. One writer says, faith, confident trust, that's another way of describing faith, derives its value not from the one who expresses it, 
but from the object in which it rests. Did you hear that? Faith, confident trust, derives its value not from the one, me, who expresses it. That's not what gives my faith value. But from the object in which my faith is placed. This woman responded in faith to what she knew about Jesus at the time. And Jesus rewarded her confidence and trust in His ability to overcome her hopeless physical condition. As we're reading through the text, after the woman touched His garment, Mark says, look back, Mark chapter 5, verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Now that's curious, to say the least. And we won't cover every detail in this large section. But I do want to cover this one because it might leave you with some confusion. When the woman touched his garment, she was instantly healed. And that's typical of Jesus. That's how he did it. It wasn't a four-month process. It was immediate. And it says that Jesus, at that very moment, knew what had happened. The very moment this happened, he knew it. So one writer says this to help us understand what's going on. This does not mean that Jesus' power went forth independently of his own knowledge or will. His healing power did not work automatically like a battery discharging its power when it gets short-circuited. That's not what's going on. Jesus isn't just some super battery. People can touch him. Oh, I felt a lowering of my power. That's not what's going on. Jesus perceived in himself, without any external suggestion, the significance of this woman's touch. Remember, there were people crowding around him all over the place. But this one was different. This one was a touch of faith. And because of that, he was actively willing to honor her faith. He was immediately conscious of his healing power going toward her. His power was always and is always under his control. That's what's going on. He turns in verse 30 and says, Who touched my garments? Who touched my garments? Now there's debate about whether he knew or he didn't know. It doesn't matter. We don't really know. It doesn't tell us in the text. But think about this. If Jesus had not stopped and asked the person to identify themselves, then the disciples, nor the crowds, would have known her story and, more importantly, the direct connection between her faith in Jesus in the healing of her body. They wouldn't have known. For that matter, we would never have known. So he stops and asks, and she tells them all. And when you think about the story, it's amazing. And you'll understand, in understanding the fact that she was declared unclean, it helps you understand why she approached him from behind. Because if she came in that crowd, she shouldn't even have been in that crowd, beloved. She was supposed to be separated from people. And the idea that she would touch Jesus was really a forbidden situation because she would make him unclean. So she comes up behind, he asks, she's healed, she bows before him, and then she tells the whole story. And that's how we have it. That's how we know it today. Like this woman, in spite of our circumstances, 
We must have faith in Jesus. Placing all of our hope and confidence, all of it, in Him. In Him. During Jesus' earthly ministry, it had been revealed to this woman that Jesus had the power to heal. But she heard the reports. And she simply believed it. That was it. She simply believed it. But this time, the object of her faith would make all the difference in the world. Her actions to pursue Him prove the reality of her properly placed faith. One more, and then we'll conclude and talk a little bit about how to apply this. The second one is Jesus reversed the irreversible. Jesus cured the incurable. Jesus reversed the irreversible. And I will... When I was doing the text this week and I was working through it, I cried multiple times. And so I'm going to do my best, because this is all I have, to get through this without doing that. I think I can do it. Because I try to go there in the story. I try to place myself there. And when I do, and you read this, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. So we're going to go back to Jarius now. Remember, he was the first person who was introduced in the story. And then this woman came along. And remember, she, he had a, a, a plea. He comes to Jesus believing, that is Jarius, that he can heal his very sick daughter. So sick, in verse 23 it says, she is at the point of death. Now there's no doubt, the text doesn't tell us, but there's no doubt he also overheard or maybe even witnessed Jesus' miraculous healings. When Jesus was in the area of Galilee, he may have been a witness to one of the many miracles that Jesus had been doing there. So maybe he actually saw with his eyes, maybe he had just heard the reports as this woman. And so he came. He came a-running when Jesus came back across the sea. And he got through the crowds, and he had an urgent request. The text tells us that he fell at his feet. He pleads with Jesus, literally begging him to come and save her life. That's the image. Mark tells us she is 12 years old. This is his little girl. And Luke tells us that it was his only daughter. Luke chapter 8, verse 42. It was his only girl, actually, his only child. His only little girl is on the verge of death. Now, if any of you have children, imagine yourself in similar circumstances. I, I think most parents would die a thousand deaths to keep their child alive. Wouldn't you agree? I have a good friend. I won't tell you his name, but he's in here. I have a good friend who prayed to God that he would not give him girls because he knew that if anybody hurt one of his girls, he would end up violating the law. Yep. That's right, huh, Tony? There is a, there's a love for children, but there's even something else that goes on between a father and his, his daughter. Jesus does not hesitate, but immediately begins to follow Jairus to his home. There's, just, there's no conversation. He just, let's go. Let's go. And you can imagine the hope 
that was building in Jarius, right? I mean, if Jesus can just get there before it's too late, he's going to save my little girl. However, the pace at which Jesus traveled is reduced by the thronging crowds that are following him. And making the situation more desperate, Jesus stops to identify and address a woman who also came to him for his ability to heal. Witnessing this event, by the way, would have strengthened Jairus' faith, that is, the healing of this woman, in Jesus' ability to heal his dying daughter. Right? So he sees this. He stops. They're on their way. This woman comes in, he stops, identifies the woman, it's declared the woman had a disease for 12 years, it was incurable, all the doctors she went to, so on and so forth. She's healed immediately by the touch of Jesus. His hope begins to build even more. But I wonder if he was thinking, you know what, that's all great, can we go now? And as Jesus... Words of comfort. This is how Mark sets it up. This is how the event is described. As Jesus' words of comfort are being spoken to the woman, daughter, you are healed. Your faith has made you well. Verse 34, news arrives. 35. Look back at 35 with me. Mark chapter 5. While he was still speaking, that is Jesus, to the woman, There came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You know, I pray to God I never hear these words. I have dear friends who have. I can only imagine the pain that flooded into this man's soul. I can can see Jarius thinking, I... I have the cure for my daughter. It is Jesus and he's following me home. And he just proved his power again by healing this poor woman. I can't wait to see him heal my... Your daughter is dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. It's over. There no longer is any hope. That's the picture. I've been to my share of funerals, and one thing that I have observed is the crushing impact death makes on loved ones left behind. Because death shuts a door that cannot be opened again. On earth, at least, the relationship is over. No more hugs, no more kisses, no more hellos, no more goodbyes, no more crying, no more hoping, No more dreaming. Death says no more. But with Jesus, death does not have the final word. Verse 36. Here it is again. But, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. It is as if Jesus grabs this 
this rich young ruler by the shoulders and shakes him. Snap out of it, my son. Do not fear, only believe. Luke chapter 8, verse 50 adds this to the words that Jesus said. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. This would have been a huge faith hurdle for this man to overcome, beloved. He knew Jesus could heal the sick. He had seen that happen before. But bring someone back from the dead? Who's heard of such things? Who's heard of such things? But Jesus is promising no less. Jairus does not leave Jesus behind and return alone to his dead daughter as was suggested by his friends or whoever it was that came from his home to give him the awful news. But you know what he does? He continues in faith as Jesus commanded. And they arrive, it says, to the scene basically of a funeral. Look at verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. It was customary. This is something else you would not be familiar with if you didn't live in those times. It was customary in the culture to hire professional mourners to cry and wail for the dead. So included in this group would have been his family, certainly. Those related to the daughter but also professional mourners. I know that's weird, but that's what they did. Their presence in action, as they arrived on the scene, confirmed the news that the girl had passed. That's what, that's what you need to see. It still has hope. Believe, Jarius. Do not fear. Believe. He arrives. The mourners are there. It's just another hurdle for this man to overcome in his faith. Jesus, though, refuses to accept their human conclusion and he takes command of the chaotic scene. Look at verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And we know these are professional mourners because no family would do this. And they laughed at him. They laughed at him. I mean, the family would be so, they would just, it would cause them to break out in tears even more, not really knowing how to respond. But professional mourners, sure, they think it's a big joke. You're kidding, right? She's dead. That's why we're here. We've already checked on her. She's dead. She's not sleeping, Jesus. And they laugh. Now, some have wrongly concluded that Jesus was speaking literally here, suggesting that she was in a coma. But most Bible scholars, at least the good ones, reject that idea. I mean, if she's in a coma, then what you have is Jesus making a difficult diagnosis of the patient before he has even seen her. He hasn't been in the house yet, guys. He hasn't witnessed this girl. Beyond that, Luke 8.53 says that the professional mourners laughed because they knew she was dead. That's added to the text. They knew she was dead. They were familiar with death and able to recognize it. They're not idiots. They know when someone is no longer breathing. Beyond that, Luke 8.55 adds that after Jesus spoke to her, her spirit returned. 
meaning it was gone. The life had left her. She was dead, beloved. It's better to understand that Jesus was speaking figuratively, meaning that her condition was not permanent, but temporary like sleep. And Jesus planned to bring her out of it. Thompson says this, one writer, he says, What Jesus wished especially to do was to put a meaning upon death more worthy of those who believe in God than that suggested by such unbridled expressions of hopeless grief. This is temporary. That's what he's saying. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Verse 42, and immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. So that's just a statement so that you know how little she was. She wasn't an infant. So this wasn't some miracle where an infant walks. She's 12 years of age. It's just, he's just telling you the story. It's a historical account. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Now, Mark here, you might wonder about this phrase, Talitha kumi. Mark records here and translates for his Greek-speaking readers. Because you've got to remember, we have it in English. Okay? It was originally in Greek for the most part. This particular phrase, though, the writer left in Aramaic. Mark, Talitha kumi, that's Aramaic. And he leaves it in Aramaic and translates it into Greek. We have it in English now. But so that you know there's a distinction here, they leave it in the Aramaic. Because if they translate it into English, you wouldn't know there's a distinction going on in the original writings. So what we have here are Jesus' exact words as he spoke them to the girl in Aramaic. Galileans, the area that they were, were bilingual. They spoke Greek and Aramaic. The best explanation, because we don't know for certain, but the best explanation I have heard for why Mark included Jesus' words in the original language was remember, and I told you this a long time ago, that Jesus used Peter as his, I'm sorry, Mark used Peter as his source for the gospel, for much of it. So Mark would have got a lot of his information from the apostle Peter. Remember there were three apostles or three disciples at the scene. The mother, the father, Jesus, and then three of his disciples in the room with this dead girl. Peter is one of them. So the explanation is this. Peter was so overwhelmed, he was so overwhelmed by what he saw, that the exact words Jesus spoke were forever burned into his mind. And so when he's recounting the story to Mark, he's telling him what's going on. He says, Mark, And Jesus said, Talitha, kumi. It just had such an impact. The sound. Because in response to those words, this little girl got up. Jesus had reversed the irreversible in bringing this little girl from death to life. Jerry says faith, believing What Jesus would do, what he had promised, was gloriously confirmed right before his eyes. Amazing story. 
Jairus and the woman, as I conclude, Jairus and the woman had one thing in common, beloved. Both were victims of desperate circumstances who really had no hope apart from Jesus. That's what Mark wants you to see. These were hopeless conditions. Both the woman and Jairus reveal that Christian faith is something that trusts in Jesus even in the midst of absolute hopelessness. Absolute hopelessness. So I want to make sure you don't take away the wrong understanding of this passage this morning. Illness and death are a part of this fallen world, are they not? Yes. Christians are not somehow immune to them, beloved. They are not. In fact, death is so certain that people prepay for and arrange their funeral services and buy life insurance in anticipation of that event. It's certain. Our bodies, regardless of our current health, will ultimately malfunction at some point and stop working altogether. Okay? I know that's not a newsflash for you, but I want to remind you of that. People do not die of old age. They do not. They die because something goes wrong internally, typically. That's why they die. In fact, if you look up natural death, I think we're a little confused in our society. If you look up natural death or you hear someone say he died from natural causes, what do you think that means? He just went to sleep and he just slept into death? To say someone died of natural causes is, or natural agents, it means that an illness or an internal malfunction of the body has taken place. That's what it means. For example, a person dying from complications from influenza. That's the cold or flu. An infection or a heart attack, an internal body malfunction, would be listed as having died of natural causes. That's what it would be. Old age is not a scientifically recognized cause of death. There is always a more direct cause, although it may be unknown in certain cases, and it, and it certainly would be a number of one of the age-associated diseases. Why am I telling you this? Regardless of someone's faith, and this is important, regardless of someone's faith or what some false teachers say on TV, not... All are healed or saved from death. And ultimately, all still die of their last disease. Hello. The health and wealth preachers who wrongly claim you should have perfect health in this life, guess what? They all die. Why? You ever thought about that? Why didn't, well, do they not believe their unbiblical message? Don't they just have faith? Isn't that all that matters? The power Jesus was displaying during his earthly ministry, and this is important, was related to the message that the kingdom of God was at hand. Remember, that's how we open in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. The kingdom of God was at hand. And the miracles he was doing were signs pointing to that hopeful kingdom 
and the identity or his identity as the king of that kingdom. The nation rejected their king. Israel turned away. And as a result, the promised kingdom has been postponed and remains the future hope of the followers of Christ. These stories give us hope that one day, one day, disease and death will no longer be a part of our reality. But it is no guarantee that those things will not be a part of reality now. And in fact, they are. They are. Jesus miraculously healed the woman and brought the little child from death to life. But beloved, they ultimately still died. Do you understand? They still died of something. Just like everyone else. But there is a day coming for Christians when the pains of this life (laughs) will be wiped away. In fact, over the last 2,000 years, it has been and continues to be the Christian's hope in what Jesus has accomplished for us through the cross and what He will do in the future that has given them the ability to live under great persecution and tribulation and with much earthly pain and sorrow, but still have visible hope. Let me show you a passage here. You don't have to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 3. We've lost this whole issue of suffering in the church, especially in the church in the great United States of USA. Or I said that, that's redundant. But uh, <laughs> we, we, for some reason, think that we're not called to suffer. We're supposed to be having our best life now. What? You know who has their best life now? Unbelievers. I borrowed that from someone. I didn't make it up, but I thought it was good. Unbelievers have their best life now. Because this is as good as it will ever get. But Christians are told over and over again, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. There's going to be tribulation in this age. But you take hope and courage because you're looking for the world to come. What a mixed up message we're giving people today. No wonder they're so confused when they actually suffer. And then people try to tell them, oh, you just need to have more faith. What? Just give a few more bucks into the offering plate. What? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Take that health and wealth and prosperity preachers. They say if you suffer, you're blessed. And they say, you shouldn't suffer. You should be well and you should be rolling. Have a nice car, big fancy house. If you suffer, you are blessed. He goes on to say, Have no fear of them, them that cause you to suffer because you stand for Christ. Nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? The hope that is in you. What hope is Peter talking about? 
I'm glad you asked that question. First Peter chapter 1. What hope is he? Is he saying the hope that I'll have a, a bigger house one day? The hope that this disease that has plagued my body will be gone in this, in this age? Is that the hope he's talking about? The hope that my rheumatoid arthritis will disappear this, in this age? The hope that I'm finally going to get a Mercedes Benz? Is that what he's talking about? That stuff doesn't exist in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Read it. It's not there. It's the words of men leading people astray and taking their money. He says, here's the hope, beloved, 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, with an exclamation point. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, Christians, to be born again to a what? A living hope through what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Oh baby, here it comes. To an inheritance that is imperishable while cars rust and houses burn. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Where is it kept? Here? Where is it kept, beloved? So you hear any nonsense that this is where it's at? That's not biblical. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. When? Now? In the last time. Oh, come on, Peter. Come on. In this you rejoice. In what? Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, and they had so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, more precious than gold, beloved. Though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. When? When our King is revealed. Do you understand what I'm saying? Give me something else here. Though you have not seen Him, this is for you, beloved. I've never seen Jesus. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Timothy George in his book, Theology of the Reformers, he was commenting on Martin Luther and one of the lowest points of his life. Now, if you don't know who Martin Luther is, let me just tell you, he's the father of the Reformation movement. He is, he is why we have Protestants and we have Catholics, not just Catholics. And just so you know, we're part of the Protestant arm of that. Just in case you didn't know. His beloved daughter, Magdalena, She was 14 years of age. She was stricken with the plague. So broken hearted, he kneels down beside her bed and begs God to release her from the pain. And if you're not familiar with the plague, and thank God we're not familiar with the plague, it's a wicked, wicked and painful and miserable disease to die from. And when she had died, and the carpenters were Nailing down the lid of her coffin, Luther screamed out, Hammer away! On the last day, she'll rise again. 
If the men on the sinking submarine in 1927 were Christians, if they were Christians, then the divers could have responded to their question, is there any hope? With a resounding yes. You are about to meet your King and Savior. This is not the end for you. Do not fear, but believe. 